right, Exodus um, 18, and as we've been tracking Israel's uh, exodus out of Egypt, we've been looking at their various wilderness stops. We took some time last week at the beginning to, to kind of review those different um, camping spots of Israel along the way out of Egypt. And these were oftentimes, these spots that God took them to were lessons to be learned along the way and a need for Israel to learn to be completely dependent on the Lord and to trust Him for all that they need, just as we've made mention here tonight. Well, the next spiritual lesson comes now in the reunion of Jethro and Moses, whereas the end of chapter 17 was about the necessity prayer. Remember, the battle that, that began to happen there uh, at the hands of the Amalekites attacking Israel and Moses going up to the mountain and praying and interceding. It showed us the importance and necessity of prayer. Um, now the beginning of chapter 18 though is moving in to kind of look at the duty now of evangelism. We're called to bear witness to God's saving power. Look at what we read here in chapter 18. We're going to look at, at Jethro's arrival. We're going to look at at Jethro's um, confession and then Jethro's counsel that is, is given to Moses here. Jethro's arrival, verse one, and Jethro the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her, two sons of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Verse five, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. So here's Jethro, it's repeated oftentimes, the, the father-in-law of Moses. And here's Jethro coming on scene and he's bringing along with him Zipporah, Moses' wife, and two children now with them, right? Now, we last saw Jethro in Exodus chapter 4. So it's been a little while since we've seen Jethro. Je uh, Exodus 4 verse 18. Jethro now has heard of God's miraculous deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and all the works that God has done on behalf of Israel. Jethro's heard of these things and he's kind of desiring to come now and see this and, and hear this report kind of firsthand from Moses. Now remember, this is essentially why God has been at work in doing these things and bringing Israel to these precarious positions, right? Every time that Israel's landed themselves in a situation, a predicament where they're crying out, why have you brought us here? Is it only to die on the wilderness? God's like, I've got a purpose in this. I've got, a, I've got a reason why I brought you here. And ultimately, look at what God said in Exodus 14, verse 17, 18. He says, and I will indeed, remember when he brought them to the Red Sea, trapped, it seemed like they were boxed in. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord when I've gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So God has been working here and bringing Israel to these situations, not just for Israel, but Israel's been working now ultimately to demonstrate and to be used to God to declare the praises of God or the wonder and the might of God. God's been at work to make himself known 
in all these situations. And here now is Jethro hearing about all the things that God has done. Just God said, this is going to be the purpose. Remember, when God brought them to the Red Sea, the lesson to be learned was that God doesn't exist for Israel. Israel exists for God, right? And how Israel was going to be used in a way where it would just simply demonstrate the greatness and the power of God for his glory alone, right? So here we see Jethro coming here and all these things. Now we also see Moses, his wife Zipporah being brought along and kind of leaping back in the pages of scripture. She was last seen also in Exodus chapter four, verses 24 to 26. And there was that, that conflict that had arisen over the circumcision of, of their son, right? And there became this debate and this kind of, you know, anger from Zipporah where she just ends up just kind of circumcising her son and calling Moses this, you know, uh, you know, person of blood here for all that had gone on. But it could be that kind of conflict that arose over the circumcision that led to their separation because Zipporah wasn't brought into Egypt with Moses. She didn't go through all that had happened there. She didn't witness the miraculous deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. She's been with her father Jethro. Now we're not sure exactly what sent her back, but it seems likely it was at that time with that conflict in Exodus 4 over circumcision, which means again, she was not in Egypt. She didn't see all these things happen. She's missed out. And that's a sad thing. Perhaps Moses knew that she was not yet on board with all that God would have Moses and Israel do. She's missed out on witnessing the amazing work of God because she was unwilling to support Moses in following God's word with circumcision and everything in their son at Exodus 4. And so I think that's a real lesson for us too that we can miss out oftentimes on seeing the wonders of God if we're dragging behind in disobedience and or unbelief, not wanting to move forward in the things of God and walk in obedience. And oftentimes it can cause us to lag behind and really miss out on the greatness of God and seeing the wonderful work of God begin to unfold. Zipporah's missed out on that. But here she is brought back in now. And as she's brought back in, there's some wonderful pictures and types that are found here. As we've been seeing through the book of Exodus, just some wonderful typology that's been going on here. As we bring various scenarios together from Israel's recent experiences, it begins to kind of fill in an incredible, wonderful picture for us and really the account of the gospel. First of all, I remember going back to the manna, we saw how this is kind of like, you know, picturing the incarnation. Remember Jesus alluded to that manna in, in John, uh, John chapter four, was it? I'm, 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 or John five, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on that one. But how Jesus alluded to the fact that he was the bread of life that's come down from heaven. Speaks of the incarnation of Christ. Water from the rock. Remember Moses was told to do what? Strike the rock and water's gonna come out. Just as Jesus would be stricken, he would take that blow of God's judgment for us, but so that we could be saved and so that we could be filled with that living water now. Speaks of the crucifixion, the water from the rock, chapter 17. And then we saw in chapter 17 at the end there, Moses going up to the top of a hill. 
speaks of that resurrection and ascension in heaven. Moses did what? He prayed there. He interceded. Remember what it says in Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore he, Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is at work right now in the heavenly places, interceding for us as Moses pictured up on top of the mountain. Well, next in the story is the meeting now with Zipporah. Zipporah, Moses' wife, pictures Israel because Israel has been called the wife of God. Isaiah 54, verse 6, Jeremiah 3, verse 20. Hosea deals with Israel as an adulterous wife. Back in Exodus 4, Zipporah left. Why? She was offended. Offended. She called Moses a husband of blood. In the same way, Israel, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, though they failed in, in whole to believe that happened, they were offended at the cross of Jesus Christ and its bloody outcome. They thought this is no way that our Messiah is gonna be dealt with or treated. This, this Jesus can't be the promised one, the Messiah. The cross became a stumbling block to the Jews. We read that in 1 Corinthians 1, 23. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. And notice though, after Christ was crucified and resurrected, the Jews were soon scattered. What is the name of Moses' son? Gershom. What does Gershom mean? It means a stranger in a foreign land. The Jewish people have been living as, as a scattered nation all over the world up until recent history when they've been brought back into land. The only nation that's lost their land yet has retained their nationality. That's never happened in, in history before. Israel is a walking miracle. How has that happened? What's the name of their other son, Eliezer? God is my help, that's how it's happened. Because God has not abandoned them or forsaken them. He's put them aside, blinded them in part. God's still been at work in the nation of Israel. He's brought them into the land and God's not done with the nation of Israel. The Jews have had a special touch on their lives. God has been with them, protecting them, and leading them. And now we see this reunion. And who's leading this reunion? It's Jethro, this Gentile priest, right? Who will be instrumental in provoking the Jews to Christ? We will, the church. This Gentile bride of Christ is called now to come and, and draw Israel back to the Lord. Provoke them to jealousy so that they will be saved. Romans 11, verse 11 says, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So we have a real clear vision <laughs> regarding these things, but the Jews are not yet at this point. See all that God has done and is doing. But how wonderful that this is kind of being pictured for us here through Exodus and just in, in this timeline of the things that we've seen happen. Where's this reunion taking place in end of verse five? It's there at the mountain of God. See, Jesus is gonna come again very soon, right? And where's he gonna come? He's gonna touch his feet down on the Mount of Olives. They're gonna be split in two. At this time, the Jews are gonna see very clearly that Jesus is indeed 
their Messiah. There's going to be a great national outcrying of repentance in that time. They will recognize him as their Messiah. Then we see in 18 verse 12, just jumping down, them coming together, eating bread, breaking bread, having this feast together. It's not going to be exciting when Jesus returns and we begin to move into this time of celebration, walking into eternity and just celebrating this time of ongoing communion with the Lord. It's not going to be exciting. Well, it's all pictured for us so amazingly here in Exodus 18. Moving along here, verse 6. Now Jethro said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being. And they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So this meeting that's taking place now between Moses and Jethro began to take on a very evangelistic kind of, you know, um, vibe to it. It was an opportunity for Moses to come and simply share all that God has done. And I think that's an awesome thing to do. We all have a similar story, right? Maybe you feel like your testimony kind of lacks a little punch and pizzazz, man. I don't have those stories that I can share that are just like, oh, incredible, you know, deliverance of the Lord. You know, you haven't had any oceans being parted or pastries falling from the sky, seeing God's provision, right? Like maybe you don't have those stories like Moses has, but God has moved heaven and earth to provide the means for your salvation. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come to this world that's a miracle right there in and of itself. And he went to the cross for you to cause you to be having the means to forgiveness and to receive eternal life. That's an incredible thing that's been done for you. That's the testimony that we share. You know, Moses didn't have to say, listen, man, I was on skid row, hooked on wild mushrooms and crocodile jerky. I was living as a prince, but feeling more like a pauper, man. God had to pluck me out from the, the state I was in. Moses didn't have to do that, right? He didn't have anything like that. He didn't even need to say anything about himself, right? The testimony was of what, of what God did. It was all about, notice what Moses says, about how the Lord had delivered them. That's all that Moses wants to share and say to Jethro. That's testimony enough. That's what it's all about. That's what our lives are a breathing, living testimony of. It's simply saying how the Lord has delivered us from a life of sin and death. He's brought us into his marvelous light. Forgiveness of sin, salvation, the hope of eternity. That's, that's amazing right there. Well, I pray that we are active in sharing that testimony with people. And notice the outcome of sharing this. Look at what we read in verse nine. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. 
and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, uh, with Moses' father-in-law before God. Notice how Jethro responds here. He responded with joy. Look what it says in verse nine. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel. He was excited, joyful, rejoicing in what God has done for others. He wasn't wondering when some of that good might come his way. He rejoiced for the good that was shown to others by the Lord. He knew that God was the one blessing. And he wanted to be a part of of blessing the Lord who is a blessing God. He's rejoicing, he's responding with joy. Secondly, he responds with faith. With faith. Verse 10, 11 shows that he believed that it's the Lord that's done this miraculous and awesome work. And he uses the covenant name of God. He uses the name Yahweh. He's not just referring to God as some God. He's seeing him as the one true God, Yahweh. And he makes a confession, I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Remember, Jethro's a Midian priest. They worshiped many gods. The worship of gods was not foreign to Jethro or the Midians. This was a very common practice. But now he's saying, I know that your God, Moses, the God, Yahweh, is the God that's above all other gods. No God that Jethro has seen can compare with Yahweh, the one true God. So he responds with faith. Ken Hughes says this, do you have the kind of faith that Jethro had? Can you say, now I know that Jesus Christ is greater than all other gods. To be a Christian is to know God's name, specifically the name of Jesus Christ. It is also to declare that Jesus is Lord, that he is the supreme God above all other gods. Jesus is superior in every way. He's superior in mercy. He is superior in, in granting forgiveness to sinners. He is superior in love. He gave his own life for our sins. He is superior in grace. He offers eternal life as a free gift. He is superior in power because by his resurrection, he has triumphed over death, and he is superior in glory, reigning supreme over heaven and earth. No other God has ever even attempted to demonstrate the amazing love and grace that God has shown in Jesus Christ. To have faith is to believe that he is the one and only Savior, the only one, or the one and only God of all grace and glory. Well, I pray that we have that kind of faith. Even with people making up a God in their own image, right? Designing a God any way they want him to be still, nobody has come up with a greater, more powerful, and benevolent God than Jesus. He's greater than all. Lastly, Jethro responds with action. Verse 12, look at Jethro went and he began to gather sacrifices, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And they began to have a, a meal together. See, this went just beyond a mere confession of faith. This moved Jethro into action and responding to it in that way. It would seem that these things reveal that Jethro now has become a, a true worshiper and follower of Yahweh, the one true God. Now, it's hard to know for sure. We, we can't be dogmatic on that, but there's a strong case to be made that here's Jethro now. From the testimony of what he's seen God do, Moses sharing that with Jethro, 
This man's convinced now. That's the God to serve. That's the God to follow. And here's Jethro now. It seems truly being converted as a follower of the one true God. Well, look at verse 13. We look at Jethro's counsel now. Verse 13, and so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So now Moses, instead of taking a much needed break, as he, I'm sure, well deserved and taking time now, hey, Zippor, kid's been a while. Let's hang out, you know, let's go on a little trip. Instead of Moses taking some time to just enjoy this reunion with his family, he gets right back to business the next day. And he's out there serving the people. And notice what it says, that Moses sat to judge the people. That'd be kind of a fun job, wouldn't it? Just hanging out, judging people. Just sitting there thinking, you're, you're too lazy. You complain too much. You're, you're a bad friend. <laughs> as appealing as that might be, that's not the judging that Moses was doing, okay? I know that a lot of you can be very judgmental. I can tell just by looking at you. No, that would be wrong. That'd be judging. But Moses isn't judging in the sense of being critical of them. He's judging to kind of, you know, uh, come and, and, and decide over disputes and different decisions that are, are needing to be made and, and questions being brought to him. So he's helping them out. He's sitting, as, he's sitting as judge and counselor over the people. And he would make known to the people, it says God's instructions and commands. It says at the end of verse 16 that he would make known the statutes of God and his laws. So here's Moses, and he's doing this because Moses has been that shepherd. He's, I mean, that, that speaks volumes. He's, he's caring for the people and, and wanting to help them along. But notice what Jethro sees and, and says. Verse 17, so Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Verse 21, moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it'll be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you if you do this thing and God so commands you. Then you'll be able to endure and all the people will also go to their place in peace. So again, it's not that Moses is sitting here trying to be head honcho over everybody and kind of be this, you know, dictator of what all needs to happen he's just desiring to shepherd god's people out of out of love and care and concern for them this had nothing to do with moses's qualifications or lack of qualifications but rather his quantity of time he just wasn't able to handle all of this on his own that's very clear 
So many people have been burnt out in ministry or just burnt out in life because they've taken on too much for themselves. They failed to delegate, prioritize, or minimize and just keep things simple. And they've taken on too much for themselves. And Moses is in that category of being fast-tracked to burnout here. Jethro says that not only Moses, but the people themselves will wear themselves out. Everybody's gonna get tired of this. Everybody's gonna be burnt out. It's too much for one person. So here's the counsel that Jethro gives to Moses. It's wise counsel. He says, first of all, pray for the people. Bring the difficulties to God. Bringing the difficulties to God is about coming and, and asking of the Lord, praying, seeking him on these things. Secondly, teach the word of God. You shall teach them the statutes and the laws, he's told in verse 20. And then at the second part of verse 20, be an example. Show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. And then here it is, appoint other leaders. That's the key. Select from all people, able men, and let them judge the people at all times. Don't take this all on for yourself. Delegate. Hand out some responsibility. Let others begin to take that place too to serve the nation. Now, Notice something with these leaders that were to be appointed. It, it wasn't about their credentials, but rather their character. That's the kind of person that God is able to work with, isn't it? He's not looking for the qualified. He's looking for faithful people of solid character. That's who God wants to work with and use. It's not the most gifted, the people that have the most experience. It's those that are of solid, godly character. That's much like what we saw in Acts chapter six, verse two to four, when there was that problem that happened in the early church. And it says, then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Appoint people of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. People of good, solid character. So, what are they to be? First of all, able men. Again, not so much about ability, but spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity, where they are, are being fruitful, solid, in the work of the Lord and in their devotion to the Lord, just simply being a good character. They're to fear God, secondly. That's simply having that respect and reverence before God, that every decision is gonna be weighed by, how's God gonna view this? Having the right fear of God. They're to be men of truth. They're to be people that stand for the truth and live in the truth. In other words, they're to be people of integrity. They're to desire to uphold truth in all things. And it says that they're to hate covetousness. And that kind of gets thrown in there like, why would that be such? Listen, people with positions can be people that begin to want to strive for greater positions or to have a, a bigger portfolio or to have more. God says, don't have people that might be prone to covetousness. They, they need to hate covetousness. In other words, it's not about them or about what they can get out of it. It's about what they can give and serve to the nation here. 
Not people that are ambitious, but people that's willing to serve. Now notice in verse 23, it says, if you do this thing and God so commands you, right? So understand, Jethro, he gave the advice, but the real question is, what does God want? Oh, it's a good thing to take counsel from other people and to hear advice, but it doesn't mean that we automatically jump on and go, that sounds like a good idea, that sounds like a good idea. Otherwise, you're gonna have people coming at you from all different directions, giving all different advice, and now you're gonna get burnout just trying to do all the different advice that people are giving you. That sounds good, I better do that, that sounds good, I better do that. No, it's what does God have for you? What does God command you? People will always have good sounding ideas, but you need to be led of the Lord. Whenever you do things in the Lord's way, and I love this, you will endure and have peace. Notice what it says in verse 23. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you'll be able to endure and all this people will also go to their place in peace. Man, that's always the way to just be strengthened and to continue on without burning out is to do things the Lord's way. It's always the way of peace, isn't it? Following what God has for you. Verse 24, so Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. So Moses, right, he listened. He followed in this advice. He saw this as good advice, godly advice. That's a sign of a good leader too, isn't it, right? Being willing to adjust and do something different and, and listen to others. Some, some people get kind of very defensive and think, oh, no, I gotta be the one that comes up with the decisions around here. I gotta be the one that has to decide. I can't take somebody else's input or advice. No, a sign of a good leader is to be willing to be flexible, to adjust, to change things up and to listen to others because we have something to learn from one another. Well, I think this also really um, lays out for us the importance of what we've also been seeing on Sunday mornings in our study through Corinthians. We've been talking about giftings in the church and, and you know, chapter uh, 12, different members of the one body, everybody having a part. We all have a part to play. Nobody's the one that's just, you know, one person doing it all. That's oftentimes, sadly, what happens in the church is we have a very few doing the work of many rather than many doing the work of few. Is that how it works? I don't know how that works, but something like that. But, um, but we've got to recognize God, God gifts people for the places he desires to use them. And we all should be looking to see how we can be engaged in furthering uh, just blessing the body of Christ here. Dwight L. Moody said truly, it is better to set 100 men to work than do the work of 100 men. You do a service to a man when you evoke a latent faculty. It's no kindness to others or service to God to do more than, you share, or that more than your share in the sacred duties of church life. So let's see, God, where do you have us fitting in the body of Christ? Help me do my share, but help me not to take other people's share as well. Let's 
let's be looking to enlist others and, and raise up others and see others serving and having a part to play in the body of Christ. Well, um, chapter 19, if, if this was Sunday morning, I'd have to wrap it up, but it's Wednesday night, so I can keep going. This is good. Um, chapter 19, um, we move in a section here in chapter 19 that's kind of a divisional break in Exodus and a major break in the history of God's dealing with mankind. It sets up the giving of the law that we'll see in chapter 20. So I wanna get into this here, chapter 19, and then we'll pick it up next time going through the 10 commandments in chapter 20 but this is kind of a bit of a a, a preview and a setting of the stage now for the giving of the law and look at what we read in verse 1 in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai for they had departed from Rephidim had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness so Israel camped there before the mountain so here's Israel now at the mountain, Mount Sinai, right? A significant place biblically. It'll be where the law is introduced, moving us into this kind of new dispensation of God. A dispensation is not so much a period of time or an age specifically, but rather the way that God deals with man. Now, while God himself never changes, his methods do, and the, and the way that he interacts and deals with man might change at times. And so there are different dispensations where we see a change in the way that God carries out his order or administration. That's kind of the, um, this word here as well with dispensation, administration. This dispensation that we move into here in chapter 19 is the dispensation of the law, all right? We know this is different than how God works in the church now. What are we living in right now? We're living in this dispensation of grace, this church age presently that we're in. So we see that there are different dispensations. We're no longer under the law. And yet this is a very important thing that God did at this time. So it's important to see how God is, is interacting and dealing with humanity in, in different time periods, different ages, these dispensations because it's important to see how we kind of apply the word. Now, all scripture is profitable for us, but not all scripture was written directly to us or for our particular situation. Passages dealing with other ages have application for us, but their primary interpretation is for the age for which they were written, all right? Now, don't take that and think, oh, okay, so not all the word's important. That's not what I'm saying. All the word is so important and we have to learn from it. It's profitable for us, absolutely. But we understand that the law was given to Israel. This was a dispensation of the law, time where God's dealing with Israel. When Christ came, Christ fulfilled the law. And we're living now in this age of grace, this dispensation of grace. We're gonna move on into another dispensation down the road where it's gonna be the dispensation of the kingdom of God, where God's gonna again deal differently with humanity. So, exciting to see there's been different dispensations throughout, uh, throughout time, and, and we're gonna see things kind of changing even in future times. But here's the deal here in chapter 19. Israel's been on the go for the last three months. It tells us that in verse one. But they're gonna spend all the next 11 months camped here at Mount Sinai as God reveals himself to them and he reveals his law to them. The next 
57 chapters. That's going to take us all the way through Leviticus and into Numbers chapter 10 is all centered right here at Mount Sinai. So it's a significant period of, of time here and focus that God's dealing with here at Sinai. And it says in verse 3, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Verse 7. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now these words that we've seen here, especially verses um, 5 and 6, are considered to be so, uh, the, the center and the theme of the entire Pentateuch. It's important here, these things that we're looking at. But notice what God says. He says that I bore you upon eagle's wings. Right there in verse 4. See, God was the one that's been caring for them all along and, and kind of carrying them along. When they thought, Moses, what's happening? Have you brought us out here to die? Here's God saying, I've been carrying you all along here on eagle's wings. Deuteronomy 32, verse 11 to, or 11 to 12 says, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led, the, led him, and there was no foreign God with him. See, what's interesting is a mother eagle will come at a certain stage in the development of their young, and they'll stir up the nest, right? They'll stir up the nest to kind of force their young to learn to fly. And if they're unable to fly, the eagle will begin to, the young eagle will fall to the ground, but the mother eagle will swoop down, right, and pick up that eagle on its wings and carry them to safety. The process is repeated until they learn to fly. It's then that they can show maturity and can become fruitful in their own endeavors. And it's such a wonderful picture of what God does because God oftentimes comes along and he stirs up our nest, doesn't he? You know, going, God, I hate it. I, I feel like I'm able to fly. Stop stirring things up. Let me just rest here comfortably. But he stirs things up in the nest and, and, and teaches us here how to be fruitful and not just get fat, right? Those little eagles, they just sit in the nest and just get fed all day long. They're just, they're going to get plump and they're not going to be able to fly at all. But he stirs up the nest, begins to kind of push them out, not to hurt them, but to help them and, and mature them. That's what God is doing in our lives oftentimes. We sit there and wonder sometimes why these difficulties happen in our lives and we question, God, where are you in that? But oftentimes it's the Lord saying, I, I, I'm using this, I'm working through this to stir you up. But to grow you, to strengthen you, to mature you, you see. Life can be a series of fruitful endeavors when we choose to leave our place of comfort, spread our wings, and fly where God directs us, trusting Him, knowing that He's got us. He's going to take care of us. He's going to see us through. Here's why God stirred up Israel, and as it says there, brought them unto Himself. First of all, to be a special treasure verse 5, to be a kingdom of priests, verse 6, and to be a holy nation, also in verse 6. See, Israel was seen as a treasured possession. And understand something, guys, this had nothing to do with Israel being so lovable. This wasn't about their good merits. In verse 3, 
they were referred to as what? The house of Jacob, right? That's kind of like sort of a little bit of a dig to kind of call them out on, on their weakness and carnality. Israel wasn't perfect by any means, but God treasured them out of his love and grace. See, this is again a great showing simply of the grace and love of God. Israel didn't deserve this. We can oftentimes think, you know, oh, Israel's a, a chosen nation, special nation before God. Well, why, God? What about this nation over here? What about that nation? This is simply just God revealing his grace. It has nothing to do with the merits of anybody. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 to 8 says this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God says, this has nothing to do with you, but so that I might demonstrate my love and use you to be a witness to the world of my love and care and grace. So Israel was a special treasure. Israel was a, secondly a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? It means that they're to represent God. That's what a priest does. They were to bring people before God and they were to reveal God before the people, declare God before the nation. So they're to be a kingdom of priests and they're to be a holy nation, meaning they were to simply be set apart. That's what they're holy means, to be set apart. Sanctified and different from the rest of the nations. That's why God gave them many of these laws was to set them apart from all the other nations. God's favor was shown by what he called this nation to be. And Peter borrows from this language when he writes in, in 1 Peter 2, verse 5 and 9, saying, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, notice a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what, Right? Special treasure, kingdom, priest, holy nation. That's what Peter says. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness in his marvelous light. This is what God has called us now into. This wasn't just reserved for Moses or for Israel. This is reserved for all the people of God. He's called us all into being that special treasure, kingdom, priest, and a holy nation. That we might declare the praises of God. That we might be that witness of the Lord. So as the people of Israel begin to see what their calling essentially is, it shows that the people are eager now to follow in this. Look at what it says in verse eight. Then all the people answered together and said, oh, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Those words are gonna come back to bite them. They'll quickly realize that their spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak, isn't it? Well, look at verse nine with me as we move on. It says there in verse nine, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes 
and let them be ready for the third day. From the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. Verse 14, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. So this calling to life of faithfulness now and obedience and holiness is seen in how they were to consecrate themselves. They were to set themselves apart for God. And what were they to do? First of all, it says in verse 10 there to wash their clothes, all right? See, God was ready to speak and he tells the people to get ready and be prepared to listen. Put away everything that defiles you. Praise the Lord, we've been made white through the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiven. And what was once staining us has been completely washed clean. Praise the Lord for that. So they're told to wash your clothes, number one. Secondly, they're told, watch your step, right? Verse 12 and 13, don't go near the mountain. Don't even touch it. Anybody that touches it shall be put to death either by stoning or by, by an arrow, because nobody can even touch those people. Now they've, they've gone beyond what they said or to do. So watch your step. Now, why is God being so harsh with this? Is God being kind of standoffish? Like, ew, you guys are gross. I don't want you to be near me. Like, is that kind of what God's doing? No, he's setting restrictions for their safety, right? A child about to touch a hot stove He's told, stop, move away. Don't go near there. That's gonna hurt you. See, God's setting, setting these boundaries for their benefit, for their protection, for their good. See, God was coming down this mountain in all his holiness, right? We as sinful people cannot endure that. We can't handle that. God's not trying to restrict us, but rather grow our reverence for him and keep us safe in these things. Likewise, people that they can have quite an irreverence before God, a lack of fear. We have to recognize God is holy and we need to have a holy reverence toward an awesome God. Thirdly, wait on God. So wash your clothes, watch your step, and then wait on God. What are they told in verse 15? Guys, don't even bother going near your wives. <laughs> Was this a bad thing? Were their wives unholy? Yeah, most women are. No, that's, that's no. Not at all. But at this time, their priority was to be on God, not on their other relationships. They were to be feeding the spirit and not the flesh. This was a time to prepare to hear from God. So told, don't even go near your wives. You don't have any relationships with them because we're getting ready to meet with the living God. It kind of served as a bit of a, a fast, right? For the people. A fast is denying the flesh in order that we might strengthen and feed the spirit. That's simply what a fast does. We oftentimes look at a fast as something that you, you know, you abstain from food. And that certainly, you know, is a fast, but it's not just abstaining from food. You can be abstaining from anything that you feel is, is causing you to see the flesh be fed more than the spirit. You could fast from TV, fast from, you know, your, your phone, whatever it might be, anything that takes you away from God. Paul even, you know, told husbands and wives in 1 Corinthians chapter seven that 
you know, you might need to come apart for a time, but, but only for a time to kind of wait on the Lord to fast and pray. So that was an instruction even given in those kinds of relationships. And so the people of Israel are told, don't even go uh, near your wives. This is a time to be ready for what God has in store. Look at verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountains. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. So this, this scene completely just inspires this awe at the majesty and the might of God. This is a spectacular sight to behold. Not just the sight, but the sounds that are accompanying this. A loud trumpet getting louder and louder as God is descending upon the mountain. And it again just reveals the holiness of God and how far we are from it. The people are seeing this and what are they doing? They're trembling. They're realizing their, their insufficiency, their, their lack of, of holiness in, in sight of God's great holiness. Now imagine the scene as we see unfolding here. Imagine the scene in the days of the tribulation when the world will be judged by a living God and he will once again reveal himself with great power and might. If this scene here at Mount Sinai invokes fear, imagine what it'll be like for the many in the tribulation who have despised God and see again his power and holiness on display. Awe-inspiring indeed. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for he warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. So Moses was called to go up the mountain in verse three. He's called to go up in verse 20. Now he's told to go back down and tell people not to break through and then come back up the mountain. That's a lot of mountain climbing going on for Moses, right? I can understand why he's saying, Lord, no, it's okay. They can't break through. They're not gonna do it. Just let me stay up here. I don't wanna go back down there again. That's a lot of work, man. Kind of arguing with the Lord here. No, no, it's okay, right? He's saying that in verse 22 or... or um, where did he say that? Verse, yeah, 23. It's okay, Lord. They'll be all right. But, but God says, away, go down. And, and what's God's heart? It's not just for Moses to get some more exercise. It's that he doesn't want to see anybody perish. He knows the, that propensity of just pushing the boundaries of hum, you know, humanity has, right? And no doubt when they begin to see the might, they're seeing the, the mountain just, you know, trembling, quaking. And of course, they're gonna feel like, I gotta get a, I wanna get a closer look at this. God knows if they do, they're gonna perish. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He's concerned 
about lives and souls here. So he sends Moses to be sure everyone knows and follows God's word. And I pray that we have that same kind of urgency for those who are perishing around us. You know, God doesn't just kind of dismiss and go, yeah, well, that's their, that's their fault, man, if they break through, I told them already. God's like caring, Moses, you gotta go down and you gotta make sure they're not gonna break through. I pray that we have that same urgency that's, that's willing to go to great lengths if it means a soul being saved. Now, this scene at Mount Sinai, like I said, is a frightening and a fearful one, isn't it? Yet in, in Hebrews, we are told of the better things that we have now because of Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to look at this with me here in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to pick it up in verse 18. It says there in Hebrews 12, verse 18, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded and as so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. That's what we read here tonight in Exodus 19. Verse 21 here of Hebrews 12, and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Notice that Moses was shaking in his boots. He's like, man, this is heavy, God. This is incredible. If Moses is trembling, who has spoken with God, think about what the camp is experiencing. But notice here what the writer of Hebrews says, verse 22, but you have come now to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Sinai spoke of fear and terror, but Zion speaks of love and forgiveness and the grace that we now experience. Zion is the city of the living God, whereas Sinai was just dry out in the desert. At Sinai, only Moses could come and meet God. At Zion, there's an innumerable company, a general assembly. Sinai had guilty men in fear, but Zion has just men made perfect in and through Jesus Christ. See, Sinai is all about law, whereas Zion is all about grace. It's all founded in Jesus Christ and through the work that Jesus accomplished for us. We have something far better in and through Christ. Praise the Lord for that. We have much to be thankful for here tonight. We could have been though standing in fear and in trembling at the law, but instead we get to come through Jesus Christ by his mercy and grace and experience the great love and fellowship that we now enjoy in and through Christ. Well, Let's pray here, guys. Worship team, hear the song. Let's close with a song here. Lord, we're so grateful. God, we're, 
we're thankful that you came and revealed yourself here to the nation of Israel. You revealed your holiness. It reveals to us how awesome you are. God, your law had purpose. We're going to see that in our study next time. But we thank you, God, that Jesus came fulfilling the law, fulfilling the very demands of the law, that we might come by grace, find forgiveness, find acceptance, and find life in you. Lord, thank you that you spared us. You spared us from perishing. You spared us from death. And you brought us into life in you, Jesus. I pray that we live it out like Moses, who was so excited to proclaim all that the Lord has done in delivering them. I pray that we would proclaim loudly all that you've done in delivering us. God, we all have that testimony to share. May we be faithful and share it. May we see many more come to know you, Jesus, in these last days that we live in, Lord. So give us that urgency that we would not, like your heart, want to see any perish, but all come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I ask these things in your name. Amen.